0: Hello and welcome to the Hypochondriacs Almanac Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got some interesting things to talk about in this very last episode for the year. First, though, before we get started, we need to talk about a few little disclaimers. We are not doctors, nurses, or medical professionals of any kind, so please don't take what we say on the show as medical advice. If you do have a medical issue, please see a doctor. We're not here to diagnose you or treat any of your health conditions, so there's that. Um, let's jump right into the show. I've got a lot of really interesting stuff to talk about today. First and foremost, I have an article by an author by the name of Terry Peters, and it's called, What is Anxiety? Why a night of drinking alcohol can lead to anxiety symptoms the following day. Curious why the day after a night out drinking, you feel more sped up and anxious than usual. You're not alone. The term anxiety is growing in popularity and may just be replacing the physical symptoms of hangover as the most dreaded post-bender consequence there is. According to an addiction medicine specialist who works with the online alcohol treatment program Monument, late night revelers often experience symptoms of anxiety like an increased heart rate and difficulty breathing the day after they overindulge in alcohol. So what causes this? The anxiety symptoms are from the alcohol leaving your body, Yoon tells Yahoo Life, explaining that the process is a withdrawal cycle. When an individual drinks alcohol, their brain becomes excited and produces pleasurable feelings. Once the alcohol wears off, your brain goes into overdrive, seeking more of the substance. For many people, it lasts until they start drinking again, and it's a negative cycle, says Yoon. For binge drinkers, it's a little bit worse because their brains get sensitized to alcohol. When they drink, their brain is happy, but when they stop drinking for a period of time, the brain reacts with anxiety symptoms until they start drinking again. What are anxiety symptoms? For Patricia Ferson, who will celebrate two years of sobriety later this month, the feeling of anxiety is all too familiar. When I was drinking, I experienced anxiety daily, she says. I think when we say anxiety, I just want people to know that I'm not saying anxiety. It's a combination of the word hangover and anxiety. So it's hang So H-A-N-G-X-I-E-T-Y. But there are times when it becomes so brutal that I would find myself standing over a bathroom sink, splashing my fully made-up face with cold water while shaking. I would drink so much at night that when I woke up in the morning, I would wake up in a hyper-anxious state and refuse to correlate the two. Among her anxiety symptoms, Frierson was headaches and upset stomach, shaking, feelings of fear and overwhelming shortness of breath. I was diagnosed with a general anxiety disorder as well as situational anxiety before I started drinking, Frierson says, but drinking alone made it so much worse. I would have had a great day at work because I was sober, start drinking immediately and when I got home would find myself in bad situations. Is there a cure? Yoon says for those who have an anxiety diagnosis, anxiety can be more severe. But are there precautions you can take before a night of drinking to minimize the next day's anxiety? Yoon says it's unlikely. The only way to prevent it is to not drink alcohol. If you do drink the following day, you can drink plenty of water and eat because they will make you physically better, and then try things people usually do for normal anxiety like deep breathing exercises or relaxation exercises that can be very helpful. But there isn't much you can do besides not drinking to prevent those feelings of anxiety. Tara Schuster, an entertainment executive and author of By Yourself, The effing Lilies, who speaks candidly about a relationship with alcohol in her best-selling book, says... Putting an end to drinking alcohol once and for all may be the best way to cope with anxiety. When I drink, what I've noticed is the very next day, even if I'm in a good place, I'm more anxious. Alcohol is a depressant and when S goes wrong, there's not time to take the edge off. The edge just might be keeping you from the abyss. So whenever I'm dealing with a difficult situation or I'm emotionally dysregulated in some way, I absolutely 100% do not drink. In addition to feelings of anxiety, Schuster says drinking alcohol often messes with deep sleep patterns and make her physically unwell. In her book, she shares one of her personal rules about consuming alcohol is that she doesn't drink alone. So she's barely drank at all during the pandemic. I haven't been drinking this year and I feel the healthiest I've ever felt, she says. Why am I in this S storm dumpster fire madness of the world and also the most mentally healthy? I would be very surprised if there wasn't some kind of correlation between me not making a choice that I know makes me feel bad and feeling the best I've ever felt. Schuster says when we feel like we need a drink, it's time to pause for a beat and ask which feelings we're hoping to turn off or self-medicate with alcohol. People use alcohol as a numbing mechanism, she explains. We say, I've had a really hard day at work. Let me have a glass of Pinot Noir. Or we get in a fight with our partner so we have a cocktail as an antidote to stressful jobs, like... Rosé all day on the weekends, and this is so effed up. Basically, what you're doing is putting lighter fluid on an already difficult situation. Sobriety has been the hardest fought battle of my life, says a South Carolina mom of two. But outside of being a mom, it's the most rewarding. I started going to therapy and practicing a myriad of techniques that will help me make it through the moments where I feel some of the symptoms I used to when I was drinking. My anxiety doesn't always go away completely, but it grounds me enough I find myself again and don't look for alcohol to help me make it through interesting that there's a term for that now next article your mental health may be messing with your gut and this article is by Ariel Wegg experiencing anxiety can look different for everyone and while some are experts at managing their anxiety when your mind races causing symptoms at really inconvenient times like a desperate need to remove the bathroom right before your big presentation you may need a little extra support After all, poop waits for no one. But what is anxiety poop, and does anxiety really make you poop? Anxiety is essentially excessive worry that's unusually irrational, at least to some degree, say doctors. In some situations, short-term anxiety can be helpful, like when we tense up and become more aware when driving in dangerous conditions. But in scenarios when anxiety is chaotic, meaning there's no imminent danger to actually be worried about, it can become harmful. The symptoms of anxiety can feel like excessive worry throughout the day. Sleep disturbances from ruminating thoughts, muscle tension, increased heart rate, inability to relax, and you guessed it, an upset stomach. We asked experts to break down exactly why this happens and what you can do to finally get relief. Why does anxiety make some people poop? Though more research is needed, science points to stress, anxiety, and anxiety disorders having a pretty important impact on your physical health. Chronic stress can lead to issues with your immune system and increased risk for heart problems and more. But this is especially true when it comes to your stomach due to the gut-brain axis. The gut-brain axis is the physical and chemical interaction between your gut and your brain. We do not know if stress and anxiety cause GI distress the other way around or both, but there is a definite correlation between the two. What's more, your gut produces 90% of the neurotransmitter that regulates mood, called serotonin, directly impacting your mental state. So in what ways do disturbances in your brain impact your stomach? Anxiety can contribute to an upset stomach and problems with bowels, which can also impact appetite and energy levels. This happens because our microbiome can change in different ways during stressful times, like changes in stomach sensitivity can cause abdominal pain, an increase in stomach acid by stress can cause acid reflux or nausea and changes in your microbiome can lead to constipation, flatulence, bloating, diarrhea, and more. This works in both ways. A change in your microbiome can make someone more anxious, stressed, and depressed as well. Stomach disturbances during stressful times can be triggered by the increase in the stress hormone cortisol, which can cause constipation, diarrhea, or both. These symptoms will likely develop slowly, and you'll find when they're anxiety-induced, you won't experience them on weekdays, holidays, or other stress-free times. Stress can wreak havoc on everything, and the most common symptom people are going to notice with stress is called irritable bowel syndrome. It's a spectrum of disorders that everyone is going to experience differently because we all experience stress differently. So how do you keep your gut healthy? The first step to relieving your stomach from anxiety-related GI issues is to rule out any larger problems like food sensitivity, One of the best ways to give your stomach relief from GI issues during stressful times is to consistently support your gut's overall health. Here are some ways you can do that. Eat smaller, more frequent meals throughout the day. Enjoy your meal slowly in an environment without stress or distractions. Incorporate foods with probiotics like kimchi, kombucha, and yogurt to help balance out your gut bacteria. Incorporate different foods in your diet to help diversify your gut microbiome. Use herbs like stomach-relaxing teas to ease symptoms. Incorporate more whole foods like vegetables, fruits, legumes, and whole grains into your diet. These are especially helpful in supporting your overall gut health. And avoid processed foods and beverages like soda, cookies, cakes, and chips. What you can do to relieve your anxiety. When it comes to relieving anxiety, it's important to be realistic with what you can control. You can't change your job, relationships, friends, financial situations, society every day because it's stressful. Changing the things outside of us is doable, but not practical. The practical thing is how we manage the stress. So if you're caught in a stressful moment, like you're scheduled for an important interview or big presentation, there are some in the moment tips that experts suggest trying to use to manage the stress. Engage in long, slow breaths through your nose and out of your mouth. This can be a challenge during the mindset of anxiety, but breathing this way will help reduce your heart rate and blood pressure. Additionally, experts recommend focusing on reality and not overthinking things. Anxiety can also build up over time, so experts suggest incorporating these tips daily to help decrease the symptoms of anxiety. Number one, eat balanced meals. Number two, aim for the same bedtime every night. Number three, integrate relaxation exercises into your daily routine and number four schedule cardiovascular exercises to help flush stress hormones out of your system when to seek help if you're finding your mental health is impacting your day-to-day activities seek the help of a mental health professional a gastroenterologist can also be great help in determining the cause of your stomach issues and rule out other major illnesses that may be impacting your health If you've been experiencing symptoms for longer than two or three days, doctors can perform tests like colonoscopies or blood work to rule out other issues. It is essential if you're experiencing dangerous symptoms like blood in your stool or abdominal pain to get them checked out. Additionally, symptoms like extreme weight loss, fever, severe symptoms that may be getting worse, or a family history of colon cancer are all reasons to visit the doctor. When you have these symptoms, it's a diagnosis Of exclusion, say doctors. We want to exclude celiac disease or something more serious. Additionally, if you're worried about food sensitivity, you can work with a registered dietitian to follow a systematic elimination diet. This typically includes temporarily removing common trigger foods from your diet like lactose, garlic, onions, and some other fruits and vegetables to determine if you're hurting your gut. The diet is not a forever diet. The purpose of any form of an elimination diet is to eventually reintroduce those suspected foods one at a time to determine specific triggers and then expand the diet as tolerated. So if you're experiencing anxiety and you're feeling it in your gut, see a doctor. They can help you kind of formulate a plan to try to get that fixed. Next article. This one came out in the Miami Herald and it's called Gum Disease Could Be Linked to Mental Health and Other Chronic Illnesses. Allison Cutler wrote this one. Your dental and mental health could be linked, along with a host of other conditions a new study from the United Kingdom found, calling the connection between gum disease and chronic illness a substantial public health burden. In the study published December 19th of this year in the BMJ Open Journal, researchers assessed mental health data from January 1995 to January 2019 to try to identify an association between periodontal diseases like gingivitis and periodontis and chronic diseases, including mental illness and cardiovascular and autoimmune diseases. The study indicated that there was a link between these. In this cohort, periodontal diseases appear to be associated with an increased risk of developing cardiovascular, cardiometabolic, autoimmune diseases, and mental ill health. Researchers concluded in the study, Periodontal diseases are very common, therefore an increased risk of chronic diseases represents a substantial public health burden. Periodontal diseases are the result of infection or inflammation of the gum and bones that support the teeth, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Gingivitis is the less severe stage of disease, while periodontitis can result in bone or teeth loss. Gum disease and tooth decay are the two most prominent threats to dental health, the CDC says. And yet, it's all too common. Almost half of adults 30 years older in the United States have some form of periodontal disease, and over 70% of adults older than age 65 develop it, according to the CDC. The universal challenge of maintaining dental hygiene was not dismissed by the researchers, Poor oral health is extremely common, both here in the U.S. and the U.K. and globally. When oral ill health progresses, it can lead to a substantially reduced quality of life, say doctors. However, until now, not much has been known about the association of poor oral health and many chronic diseases, particularly mental ill health. The study compared 64,379 adults with a recorded diagnosis of periodontal disease to a group of 251,161,000 adults with periodontal disease. The groups were paired by age, sex, deprivation levels, which included information on unemployment, household overcrowding, car ownership, and registration rates. Researchers then used logistic regression models to assess the odds of having chronic diseases between both groups. The results showed that the group with periodontal disease had a higher likelihood of having a diagnosis of cardiovascular disease, cardiometabolic disease, autoimmune diseases, and mental illness, like depression and anxiety. Based on the 9.9% of those diagnosed with periodontal disease were identified to have cardiovascular disease, compared to the group with periodontal disease, 7.4%. Of the group with periodontal disease, 29.7% were reported to have mental illness, compared to 19.5% of the group without dental disease. Our study demonstrates a significantly increased risk of all mental health illnesses in patients with periodontal disease, the study stated. Furthermore, within the same periodontist cohort, there was a significantly higher risk of developing depression. This provides further evidence for the potential physiological impact of periodontal diseases and an issue that is underreported in literature. The study notes that its limitations for research were that all the diagnosis and mental information were contingent on whether they were accurate in the database. It also noted that while it took eligible patients diagnosed with periodontitis by general practitioners, they are not typically the ones responsible for identifying gum disease. Other studies have offered insight about how dental health can affect other parts of the body and immunity. In a study earlier this year of about 34,000 adults, researchers found that those with more tooth loss faced 48% higher risk of cognitive impairment and a 28% higher risk of dementia. Dental health may also impact COVID-19 cases. One study published last year in the U.S. National Library of Medicine suggested there may be a link between poor oral hygiene and severe COVID-19 cases considering high amounts of bacteria in the mouth when dental hygiene is not practiced. Since the lungs and mouth are constantly circulating bacteria between them, poor oral hygiene can play a part in respiratory infections or post-viral bacteria complications, the study reported. And maintaining proper hygiene is critical to prevent airway infections. Meanwhile, we recommend that oral hygiene be maintained, if not improved, in order to reduce the bacterial load in the mouth and the potential risks of bacterial superinfection, the study said. Bacteria present in patients with severe COVID-19 are associated with the oral cavity, and improved oral hygiene may play a part in reducing the risk of complications. More people stopped going to the dentist at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, too. A study from September 2020 reported that dental services fell by 75% within the March 2020 within March 2020 and 79% in April. From February to March 2022, decay in cavities rose from a fifth Tooth decay and cavities rose from 5th to the 4th most common dental diagnosis in urgent care centers. Periodontal disease was ranked 6th. For those looking to improve their oral hygiene and get a head start at preventing dental disease, the National Institute of Health has tips and tricks for staying healthy. Yikes. So you definitely want to make sure you're brushing your teeth, flossing your teeth, taking care of all that stuff during this time because it's obvious that there are some significant risks to having those sorts of problems next article this is a scary one this came out in buzzfeed man peed out a kidney stone his girlfriend shared it online and it has unlocked a new fear for millions of people hello internet meet lauren and solomon they're both 37 and both virgos born two days apart recently the two caught the attention of over six million people after lauren shared this video of a kidney stone solomon passed This is indeed terrifying. If you look at the picture of this kidney stone, it looks sharp, jagged, and very large. Buzzfeed spoke to the couple to find out more information. Solomon has had a chronic kidney stone issue for about 21 years, and the stone in the video is one he passed this past December. And although the kidney stone looks enormous in the video, it's actually measured at five millimeters, which is still big for a kidney stone. Five millimeters may not seem big, but when it's a jagged rock making its way through your uterus and then out of the urethra, it sure does feel big, Solomon said. In the video, I'm poking the stone with a pair of tweezers. With the video being magnified, many folks thought I was using a pair of pliers and they thought the stone was the size of a thumb, when it was not. Solomon says he feels lucky this particular stone didn't require him to have surgery, as the other ones in the past have. I currently have at least four large stones in my kidneys that range from six to nine millimeters, which will be surgically removed because they're less likely to pass on their own and could cause swelling of the kidneys, which may lead to kidney damage. Solomon and Lauren answered a few questions to comments they had on TikTok. They said many people were making incorrect assumptions, presuming Solomon's lifestyle habits like drinking soda or energy drinks, which he doesn't drink, by the way, caused his kidney stone. A lot of chronically ill people get this sort of feedback, and that's a little bit ableist. It's normal to try to problem solve, but more often than not, chronically ill people are very well versed in their illnesses and probably have tried a bunch of things. It ends up sounding like we're being blamed, and that's not helpful or supportive, Solomon said. He added, I've been seen many times by doctors, had many tests, and tried many ways to prevent this from happening over the past 21 years, but unfortunately, this seems to be genetic. Those commenting don't know that I'm a master-level nurse, which is an MSN, PHN, or RN, so I have a really good grasp on how the renal and urinary systems work and various treatment options. Although Solomon did get some unsolicited advice, others actually thought the kidney stone was a crystal. A lot of people thought we were on crystal TikTok. My favorite comment was someone saying he should turn it into an engagement ring. We had a semi-serious discussion about me not wanting that or laugh. To learn about kidney stones in general, BuzzFeed spoke to Dr. Crystal W. Savis, who is a Harvard Internal Medicine resident physician. Dr. Savis explained that kidney stones, which may also be called renal calculi, or a number of other things, are common and on the rise in about 11% of men and 6% of women who experience them at least once in their lifetime. Kidney stones are mineral deposits that can persist in your urinary tract. Stones form when calcium that is usually dissolved or absorbed in the body enter your urine and form a crystal. Kidney stones can range from the size of a pebble to that of a golf ball. For instance, for reference, the five mm stone Solomon passed was likely about the size of a pencil top eraser. The shiny spiky crystal you're seeing is a result of oxalate, an acid that sticks to the calcium when leaving the body and can be jagged or smooth, the doctor explained. A lot of kidney stones are hereditary and unavoidable, as is Solomon's case. But Dr. Salvis says that drinking lots of water and having a healthy diet can help some people avoid them. A diet low in salt, sugar, and animal protein, but with some moderate to low-fat dairy products is suggested. Your diet should also be rich in potassium from fruits and vegetables, but remember to limit acid-producing foods like spinach, rhubarb, potatoes, peanuts, cashews, and almonds. For anyone who thinks kidney stones aren't a big deal, I would say pass a stone and get back to me, Solomon said, ending with a fun little tidbit you might be interested in. He is willing to sell the stone, so make him an offer. (laughs) You can follow Solomon and Lauren on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. You can also follow Dr. Sabbath on Instagram, visit her website, and join her Patreon membership where she hosts monthly live chats, personalized mentorship, and exclusive video blogs. Well, I certainly hope none of you have kidney stones to pass this year. That sounds like a terrifying experience. Next article. Older adults with moderate alcohol consumption may have decreased risk of heart disease, study suggests, and Amy McGorry wrote this article. Older adults who drink moderate amounts of alcohol may have a reduced risk of cardiovascular disease and a lower risk of mortality from all causes compared to those who did not drink according to a study published last month in the European Journal of Preventive Cardiology. The study looked at more than 18,000 individuals over the age of 70 from the United States and Australia. Modest alcohol intake in this group of healthy older adults was not harmful for CBD or overall mortality, according to Dr. Johannes Newman, who led the team of researchers from Monash University School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine in Australia. The lead author of the study also said further research is warranted to evaluate causal biological effects of alcohol on health, and possible behavioral advantages of social drinking and engagement, according to the release. According to a news release, it is the first study to explore the association of alcohol consumption on heart health and mortality from all causes in initially older, healthy adults. The researchers noted in the release that although excessive alcohol consumption is a major risk for mortality and is a leading contributor to global burdens of disease, Prior studies suggest that moderate alcohol intake may be associated with decreased risk of events related to cardiovascular disease. The authors said that the evidence is based on data from younger individuals and older adults is lacking, according to the published results. Thus, we sought to investigate the risk of CVD events and all-cause mortality associated with alcohol consumption in initially healthy, older individuals. Newman and his research team looked at data from almost 18,000 participants who were over at the age of 70. The Asprey Project is a binational study in Australia and the U.S. that looks at aspirin and the well-being, quality of life, and overall health in older adults. Participants in the alcohol consumption study did not have any prior cardiovascular disease events and no diagnosis of dementia or physical disability that limited their independence, according to the release. Cardiovascular disease or CVD events included in the study were defined as non-fatal myocardial infarction, coronary heart disease death, stroke that is fatal and non-fatal, non-coronary cardiac or vascular death, and hospitalization for heart failure. The authors of the published peer review study said participants were asked in a self-reported questionnaire about how many alcoholic beverages they consumed each day and how many days a week they consumed alcohol. The study did not include individuals who drank alcohol and stopped for health reasons. Alcohol intake was measured in grams per week and a standard drink was considered 14 grams for US participants and 10 for Australian ones. The researchers followed the participants for an average of 4.7 years and found a reduced risk of CBD events for people who consumed alcohol in the amount of 51 to 100 grams a week. In Australia that equivalent is 5 drinks, in US it's 3.5 drinks. Or 101 to 150 grams per week, that is Australian 5 to 10 drinks, and US 3 to 7 drinks. And lastly, 15 drinks for Australians and 7 to 10 drinks for Americans, compared to those who never consumed alcohol, regardless of gender. The study author said the findings also suggested that alcohol consumption of 51 to 100 grams a week, that's 5 drinks for Australians and 3.5 for Americans, was associated with decreased chance of all cause mortality. Dr. Newman, the lead author of the study, said in the release the findings need to be interpreted with caution as study participants all initially were healthy without prior CVD or other severe disease and may have been more physically and socially active than the wider aging population. Newman also cautioned in the news release that there's prior evidence that excessive consumption of alcohol increases the risk of other diseases, including liver disease, certain cancers, and pancreatitis. According to the website of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the agency who did not take part in the study The 2020 to 2025 Dietary Guidelines for Americans recommend that older adults of drinking age can choose not to drink or to drink in moderation by limiting intake to two drinks or less a day for men or one drink or less than a day for women on days when alcohol is consumed to reduce the risk of alcohol-related harms. I think it can be beneficial for everyone to reduce their alcohol intake, but you don't necessarily need to eliminate it all the way. Next article. A tiny device the size of a 5p coin could unlock the answer to fertility problems. This article was written by Matthew Watts. Unexplained fertility problems could be solved by tiny wireless devices which have been implanted in two women in a world first. The 5p sized device developed by fertility experts and engineers at the University of Southampton monitor oxygen, pH, and temperature levels inside the womb, something not previously possible. Infertility can be caused by many factors and can impact both men and women, with as many as one in seven couples in the UK experiencing problems when trying to conceive. But in around a quarter of cases, doctors are unable to identify a specific cause, leaving thousands of couples turning to in vitro fertilization, or IVF. However, that comes at a cost of at least 5,000 pounds for a single treatment, which here in the US I can believe 10 to 20,000 for a single IVF treatment can often be the norm. Usually two or three cycles are required as well, so it can be quite expensive, but using this new device, clinicians can diagnose the cause of unexplained infertility before any treatment begins, and even find simple solutions to change the condition of the womb, like probiotics or aspirin, but how does it work? The sensor is inserted into the womb by a doctor or nurse in minutes in the same way a contraceptive coil is implanted, or an IUD is what we call it here and the device remains in place for seven days. During this time, it sends wireless data to a microchip and a special set of underwear every 30 minutes. Clinicians are then able to assess the findings and determine if there are any issues which require intervention. The experts behind it said that it has been well received by two patients and the data has been recorded successfully with little discomfort. It is believed the breakthrough could lead to clinicians being able to assess the health of the wound in a similar way to taking a patient's blood pressure and even quicker and more tailored care. New devices could drastically change the fertility outlook. The technology was invented by Professor Ying Chong, a reproductive medicine specialist, and bioelectronics engineer Professor Hywel Morgan, both of the University of Southampton. It is now being developed by Verso Biosense, an Oxford based women's health company. Currently, fertility tests take time. Some couples may not receive a diagnosis for their issues straight away or at all and there has been to date no reliable way to understand how the womb environment affects fertility, says Professor Chung. With this device, we have for the first time the ability to understand precisely what is happening in the womb, with the possibility of taking swift and simple interventions as a result that could drastically change the fertility outlook. Our aim and our belief is that we can get to a point where the technology that it can be seen as no different to taking a patient's blood pressure, giving us a great insight into potential problems earlier and in a less invasive way. The result can be huge in that if we you know, for example, a drop in pH levels could be related to bacteria in the gut, then a person may benefit from probiotics, while poor oxygen levels could be altered by aspirin to increase blood flow. The device is currently being studied as part of a large funded trial in the UK by the National Institute for Health Research, with 18 more participants needed to complete this stage. Professor Chong added if we can prove this device works successfully and is comfortable and safe, then we have the ability to make big changes to fertility care across the UK and internationally and help give many more women the best chance of conceiving. So far, the device has been well received by patients, data has recorded successfully, and there was low discomfort. So overall, very encouraging, and we're moving closer to being able to improve fertility care quite considerably. Commenting on the development, Professor Roger Sturmey, Professor of Reproductive Medicine at the Whole York Medicine School and University of Manchester said, Being able to understand the environment in the womb with such accuracy will hopefully enable quicker and more accurate diagnosis of subfertility, and so might also allow tailored interventions which could reduce the need for multiple rounds of IBF. Of course, with any new biomedical technology, extensive further research is needed, but this is a critical and exciting first step. I think it is. It sounds very, very promising. Next article. Women who practice self-compassion are less likely to develop cardiovascular disease, according to a new study. And this article was written by Nashia Baker. It's been long understood that practicing self-compassion through self-care techniques like mindfulness can provide a sense of peace in everyday life. And now, according to a new study published in the journal Health Psychology, the health benefits of being good to yourself keep coming. A research team out of the University of Pittsburgh found that middle-aged women who regularly practice self-compassion have less risk of developing cardiovascular disease. This proved to be true no matter the warning signs of the illness like high blood pressure, insulin resistance, and high cholesterol. A lot of research has been focused on studying how stress and other negative factors may impact cardiovascular health but the impact of positive psychological factors like self-compassion is far less known, said Rebecca Thurston, PhD, professor of psychiatry, clinical and translational science, epidemiology and psychology in a media release. The study authors experimented by researching 200 women, all between the ages of 45 and 67 years of age. They provided a survey which gave the studies volunteers an opportunity to detail how often they felt like they were lacking personally, felt discouraged by any flaws they saw within themselves, and gave themselves a chance to care for themselves when feeling stressed from life. From there, researchers tested each woman's health based on diagnostic ultrasound of their arteries, the vessels found in the neck that carry blood from the heart to the brain. The participants that had the highest self-compassion scores also had who did not practice self-compassion as frequently since the condition listed above was tied to the risk of developing cardiovascular disease or experiencing a heart attack or stroke the act of self-compassion appears to help combat these health issues head on and the study author's research stayed consistent even after factoring in depressive emotions smoking and low physical activity among participants these findings underscore the importance of practicing kindness and compassion particularly towards yourself dr thurston said we are all living through extraordinarily stressful times and our research suggests that self-compassion is essential for both our mental and physical health. Well, that I have no doubt about. So practice that self-care. Take care of yourself, people. That's it, folks. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can contact us at our email. We're at hypoalmapodcast at gmail.com. We do occasionally post on social media as well. We're at podcast.addict. Please rate, review, and subscribe as well. It helps our little podcast pop up higher in the ratings for people who are looking for content like this. I just want to do a special shout out and a special thank you to everyone who has supported this podcast throughout the year. We wish everyone a safe, happy, and healthy new year, and we look forward to bringing amazing content to you all in the next year. Good night, everyone. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye.